0: We're continuing this morning with our series on the Songs of Advent, looking at some of the Christmas hymns that we love and sing at this time of year. And so each week, we're looking at a different Christmas hymn, and we're kind of taking a brief history tour to get the background of the song. But the majority of our time, what we want to spend that time doing is digging into God's Word to say, where in Scripture does this Christmas hymn spring from? where is the basis for what we are singing? And so we've done uh, two songs so far. We did O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Last week we did What Child Is This? This week we're doing another song, and maybe I should ask you this question. Does anybody know which Christmas hymn is based in part on a poem about hunting? I didn't figure you would know. I didn't know. It's Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which is one of my favorites because it's loaded. It's loaded with good theology. And so we're going to talk a little bit about Hark the Herald Angels Sing this morning and see where it comes from in Scripture. This song is written by Charles Wesley. And um, Charles had a brother named John who's maybe a little bit more well-known. John Wesley is known as the founder of Methodism. And uh, he, these two, along with one other famous man, George Whitfield, were part of what is known as the Oxford Holy Club. When they were in school in Oxford, in England, uh, they had a kind of a group of people that were really concerned with holiness, concerned with sanctification. They really wanted to take that seriously and work hard at it. Well, they all kind of went on with their ministry after school, and Charles did a lot of hymn writing. John spent a lot of time in America riding horseback, circuit riding, and kind of starting churches and starting these small groups. And so small group ministry often is kind of traced back to John Wesley. Uh, You you find that in Ohio and lots of other places, there's a Methodist church in almost every small town. That's due to John Wesley and those who took his philosophy and came after him. George Whitfield. His theology ended up being slightly different than Charles and John. Um, He was probably a little bit more in line with where we were at as, as a church, but he's well known as being a preacher during the Great Awakening. And so he was a revival preacher. God used his preaching greatly, both in England and in America. He did lots of different tours of both lands. Well, this song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, was first published in 1739 in Hymns and Sacred Poems. The original first line of the song is this, Hark how all the welkin rings, glory to the king of kings. Obviously, there's a word in there that we don't use today. And that word is welkin, that means sky or heavens. And so the idea is that the heavens are ringing with the sound of praise in honor of the king who is born. Now, Charles Wesley is likely referring to, or borrowing from is probably the best way to say it, a poem written by William Somerville four years earlier, a poem called The Chase. And here's the line that kind of uh, lets us know he might be borrowing. The welkin rings, men, dogs, hills, rock, and woods in the full consort join. So picture maybe an English fox hunt with all of the horses and the riders and the dogs and all that's going on and the noise and the, the, uh, just the, the sounds of that hunt. That's what the poem by Somerville is about. And it seems that Charles Wesley borrowed from that and kind of translated it into what he wanted to talk about. Now, historians of hymns note that Charles Wesley did that quite a bit. He borrowed from other poet, poets, And would take their imagery and repurpose it for the gospel. And so uh, the hymn historian J.R. Watson says about this particular line he says, Here the cries of the huntsmen and hounds become the sounds of the multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. Well, 14 years after Charles Wesley published, that song, George Whitfield published it in one of his hymnals that was kind of uh, published in dedication to a new tabernacle, a new building that uh, was uh, part of the church that he was ministering in. And he took this song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and he put it in that hymnal, but he adjusted this line. Apparently, it hadn't resonated all that well with him, or maybe he had heard some feedback from people, and so he changed it to be, Hark! The Herald Angels Sing Glory to the Newborn King. And the text of the rest of the song kind of developed over time as well. As far as the music that we use to sing, this was originally set to a different tune. And if you know anything about music and meter, if songs have the same meter, kind of the number of syllables in each line of the poem, then you can interchange the different melodies that you're using. So originally this was to a tune called Salisbury, which is what we know today as Christ the Lord is Risen Today. So Christ the Lord is Risen Today. Well, originally this would have been, Hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn King. So you get the idea. Over a hundred years it had that tune. And then it was given a new tune, Mendelssohn, which is the one that we're familiar with today. So that's a little bit of the background of this song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. So now I'm going to just play the song for you and you can hear it. And then we'll talk about where this song comes from in scripture. Go ahead and turn in your Bible, if you would, to Luke chapter 2, and just hold your place there. We'll get there in a minute or two. The first verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, let me just read it for you again here Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the newborn King, Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Well, let's just kind of dig in here right at the beginning. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Hark means listen. So listen up. Herald angels. To herald something is to announce it. So these are the angels who announce Christ's birth to the shepherds. And they are singing, Glory to God in the highest. Does this mean glory to God the Father? Does it mean glory to Jesus? Well, it could be glory to God the Father for keeping his promise of sending a Messiah and having now sent Jesus, his son, the Savior. It could also mean glory to God is aimed at glory to Jesus, because he's the son of God. Maybe it's both of them together. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Peace on earth is part of the angels' announcement. If you have your Bible in Luke chapter 2, look at verses 13 and 14, and the announcement that is given here by the angels. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus is the prince of peace. We're going to see that later in Isaiah chapter nine. He brings peace in two stages. There's two ways we need to think about peace. The first is that he brings peace with God, for individuals who are Christians, those who are believers, those who have been justified by faith. We see this in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he brings peace Through what he does on the cross, in that, he brings peace between God and man. He also brings, though, someday, worldwide peace when he reigns. We're going to see that in his kingdom, but ultimately in the new heavens and new earth. There will be perfect peace someday. Then we have this phrase, peace on earth and mercy mild. That's one of those kind of maybe ways of saying things that we don't use today. So it's good for us to pause and think about it for a minute. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. So you deserve punishment of some kind, but the person who rightfully could give that punishment withholds it. That's showing you mercy. Mild is the idea of being tender or gentle or compassionate not severe. So in this coming of Jesus to earth that we're celebrating at Christmas, he's coming with mercy mild. He's coming with a compassionate offer of mercy. He is someone who rightly could be coming in a different way. But in this arrival of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas, he's coming in mercy and he's coming in gentleness and not in severity. And then we say God and sinners reconciled. To reconcile is to bring back into alignment something that was out of alignment. So sometimes you have to reconcile your checkbook. You've been writing checks, and you add, and you subtract, and you, you you say, well, here's the amount that I have in my account. And then your bank says, no, here's the amount that you have in your account. And you've got a, a disparity. Those two numbers are out of alignment, and you have to reconcile your checkbook. You have to figure out what, what what's the difference. What do I need to fix? Oh, yeah, I forgot I wrote a check for that thing. And you put it in there, and then the numbers line up. Now they're in alignment. They're reconciled. Well, we are out of alignment with God because of sin. And so we need to be reconciled, brought back into alignment with God. Turn in your Bible, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I just want you to see this passage. It's a a helpful one in thinking about this idea. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 17 through 21 for you. 2 Corinthians 5:17 through 21. We're thinking about the idea of reconciliation, the idea that we need to be reconciled to God. Starting in verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Okay, remember in the old creation, Adam and Eve fell, and that sin brought us out of alignment. Now, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, now, catch this, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us. The message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me just observe a few things from those verses that I think are helpful. Number one, in verse 18, God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself. Notice that it doesn't say that God reconciled himself to us. He reconciled us to himself. He's the perfect standard. We're the ones who are out of alignment, so we've been reconciled to him. The same idea is there in verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. The world is out of alignment with God. God's the perfect standard. The world gets reconciled to God. How did he do it? Look at verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange that we've talked about so many times. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, on the cross, takes our sin on himself and pays the penalty for it and gives us his perfect righteousness. It's that great exchange. And now we are righteous. So like we saw in Romans 5 and verse 1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We've been reconciled to God. We've been declared righteous in his sight. And so now we have peace. Now we are reconciled. All of that is what's in view when Charles Wesley writes, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. So you can see he has in view more than just what's happening in the birth of Jesus. He's got in mind something much bigger. The whole plan of God that is the reason that Jesus has been born. As we continue on in verse 1, we read, Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. We've talked about this in previous weeks, but the nations are called to come to worship. Let me just read you one verse here. Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. The nations come to worship. Joyful all ye nations, rise, join the triumph of the skies. Now, what is the word triumph doing in there? The angels are not... Even though the angels are a a, a military contingent of heaven, so to speak, they're not here fighting a particular battle. They're here to make an announcement and to celebrate. So why is it called the triumph of the skies? And to understand this, we actually have to understand how that word gets used in Scripture based on the Roman use of the word. And here's what I mean by that. The triumph was a Roman military victory parade. So when a Roman general won some great victory, he would often be given a parade, a celebration, so that when he returned to Rome, he would come and he'd be riding on a horse and there would be a contingent of uh, military there with him. And maybe even, like, for instance, like we would have in a parade, we'd have a float with something on it. They would have a float with, A demonstration of what happened in the battle. And maybe even some prisoners who are in chains, who are on display there as this parade is coming in. So picture in your mind, for instance, 1944. The military parade in... Paris, as the allied army marches in victoriously, you have the Arc de Triomphe there in the background, and there were planes flying over, and there's tanks coming through, and everybody comes out and gathers to celebrate this great military victory. That's what's going on. Triumphs were at their height during the time of Jesus and the writing of the New Testament into Paul's writings and, and John's, and so you have this idea of a Roman triumph, this parade of a general ending in the city of Rome and in celebration of this general. Let me give you just kind of an example. One of those triumphs was given for Titus. Titus, in A.D. 70, marched in and destroyed Jerusalem. There was, it was such a great victory, even though it's actually over a Roman province, not over a foreign enemy, that an arch was constructed, kind of like you see here in Paris, you see the Arc de Triomphe. In Rome, you have the Arch of Titus that was constructed to honor Titus for the destruction of Jerusalem. If you zoom in here on some of the detail, in fact, and you look at this, here you have the captives and some of the spoils of war being brought in. So, uh, right up here, you see a menorah. That's a Jewish candelabra. Probably this is the one from the temple itself. Being brought in to Rome. The captives and the, the spoils of war. It's this grand celebration of a military victory. That's what's going on. Let me just highlight it by Reading for you what Paul says. This is second Corinthians chapter two and verse 14. He says, "But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. So the idea here is that we as the people of Christ, follow him in triumphal procession as he celebrates his victory and the announcement of that victory is the gospel it's this fragrance that goes out and announces the good news in the world and by the way this is also kind of what's in view in first Thessalonians 4 when we read that when Jesus returns it says um, we will rise to meet him in the air The word that's used there is only used in three passages in the New Testament. And the idea is it's the people of the city rushing out to meet the victorious returning general or some visiting dignitary or something like that. They go out and meet him and escort him back into the city. We see it, for instance, in Matthew Uh, Jesus tells the story of the bridesmaids, and some of them are prepared and some of them are not. Well, when the groom is finally coming, the prepared bridesmaids rush out to meet him and they escort him into the wedding. Same idea in the book of Acts, when Paul finally arrives in Rome, the Christians in the city of Rome come out to meet him and escort him into the city. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, when we rise to meet the Lord in the air, we're rising to escort him in as the victorious king. That's the triumph of the skies. But the angels got it started a little bit early. It's the already and the not yet. So the angels are in the skies celebrating the victory of Christ over Bethlehem before the victory has actually been won because they know what's coming And the victory is then won at the cross and the resurrection. And that victory is being implemented. And there's coming a day when the king will return victorious. And we will rise to meet him in the air. Probably with those angels who were announcing the birth of Christ. And will in victorious triumphal procession escort him in as king. All of that I think is in view Charles Wesley writes, join the triumph of the skies with the angelic host. Proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. This is your invitation to join in with the angels in celebrating the birth of Christ because of what it signifies, the victory that is on the horizon when this baby is born. Verse 2, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. So we go back to the first lines here, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Christ is adored by heaven. What does that mean? Does it mean that he's adored by God the Father? Well, yes, that's true. Matthew 3, 17, at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Or does it mean that he's adored by the angels? We've seen it in Luke chapter 2. The angels are saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's God and the angels, I think. It's all the hosts of heaven. It's everyone who's, who's in the know as to what's going on is adoring Christ, the everlasting Lord. So he's the Lord and he's everlasting. That means he's eternal. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not only is this the arrival of one who's going to be the Lord, but he's everlasting. He's from eternity past. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Late is another word that we've used differently today. When we say someone is late, we mean it's past the time that they should have been here. That's not what this is saying. It's not saying that God's design was for Jesus to arrive sometime before he actually did. Late here means recently. Recently. Now, for Charles Wesley, recently is 1,700 years ago, but in the grand scheme of things, in God's ultimate plan for human history, this is recently, late in time, behold him come. In the fullness of time, at just the right time, he has arrived. He's offspring of a virgin's womb. We saw that he's eternal, he's the everlasting Lord, and yet, now we see he's fully human. He's the offspring of Mary. So John 1.1 told us, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Fourteen verses later we read, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So not only is he the everlasting Lord who's been there since eternity past, he's now also fully human, the offspring of Mary. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see, hail the incarnate deity. What does it mean that he's veiled in flesh? I think this is a very intentional choice of words by Charles Wesley. Veiled in flesh. We just said John 1.14, the word became flesh. So this is Jesus now in the flesh. And if we go to the end of his life and ministry, Mark chapter 15 verses 37 and 38, here's what we read happens while Jesus is on the cross. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now historians tell us that the temple veil, okay, that's the the veil that, that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. In the holy of holies is the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. The holy place has several other things and the priests come in regularly into the holy place but they don't go into the holy of holies except for once a year on the day of atonement. The veil is what separates those. Historians tell us that veil is 30 feet wide in the temple in Jerusalem, 60 feet high and the thickness of it is the thickness of a man's hand they say that it took 300 priests to be able to lift it up and hang it when the time came. But we just read in Mark that when Jesus died, that veil, that curtain was torn from top to bottom. In other words, you are to imagine the hands of God reaching down and tearing that veil in half, opening the way into the Holy of Holies. Which is why the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verses 19 to 21, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, just like in our kids' video this morning, their blood stands for the event, the crucifixion, By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. The writer to Hebrews puts an equal sign between the flesh of Jesus and the veil of the temple. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. So when the flesh of Jesus was torn on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn to show us that the death of Jesus opened the way for us to come into the presence of God. So hail the incarnate deity, Hail, honor, worship. Incarnate deity. Deity means God. Incarnate means in the flesh. The in the flesh God. Worship him, honor him. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. God was pleased to become a man and live among us. The Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us, one of us, living with us. That entire verse of the song is designed to emphasize for us how Scripture shows us that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now, verse 3. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings, risen with healing in His wings. Mild He lays His glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Heaven-born is probably intended to emphasize that he didn't come into existence in his human conception and birth. He's just spent a verse, Charles Wesley has, emphasizing that he's fully God and fully man. And here he's reminding us that his origin, so to speak, is in heaven in eternity past. And origin is a very loose way of saying it. He doesn't have an origin. He doesn't have anywhere that he came from because he has always been. But he's the Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to read this for you. If you'd like to turn there, you can. I'm going to read verses 2 through 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. And here's what is given as prophecy. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's a prophecy about the Messiah. And the kind of ruler that he's going to be. He's going to be a prince of peace. He's going to establish a rule of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. He's going to rule with justice and with righteousness. There are a lot of calls in our day for justice. But you never... Hear those calls accompanied by a call for righteousness. But this king will rule in justice and righteousness. He will be a prince of peace. We sit right now in the middle of a contested election. Can you imagine how wonderful it would be to have a prince of peace? One whose rule would be perfect. One who would settle all disputes. One who would have perfect justice and perfect righteousness. Well, this is an already and not yet issue. He's the Prince of Peace. And for those of us who are believers, who have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, according to Romans 5. But we are still awaiting the day when we will have peace worldwide, as he institutes his reign and this kingdom of peace. This verse goes on to say, Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. This is a reference to Malachi chapter 4. And I am going to ask you to turn to this one. This is the last place I'm going to ask you to turn this morning. Malachi chapter 4. This chapter only has six verses, and this is the very end of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, and I want to start by reading verse 2. But after I read verse 2, don't close your place yet. Malachi 4 and verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Okay, so again, verse 3 here of Hark the Herald Angels, we have Hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Do you notice what has been changed from Malachi to this hymn? Look at the phrase Son of Righteousness. In Malachi, it is Son, S U N, here, Charles Wesley has said, I'm applying that to the sun, S-O-N, of God, the sun of righteousness. And he's not wrong to do that, but it helps us to go back to Malachi to understand what is meant here. See, the sun of righteousness is originally the sun, S-U-N, the sun up in the sky. And here's what it means. When the prince of peace comes and rules in righteousness, that righteousness is going to have an effect like the sun. The light and the warmth of righteousness brings health and healing, just like the sun brings health and growth in nature. But this verse has a context. So let's look at the chapter. It's only six verses. Look at verse 1. Malachi 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. This is the judgment of the wicked. You can go back into Malachi 3 to see this. But here you have the same sun that is the sun of righteousness that brings healing to God's people, is also the sun that brings scorching judgment and destruction on the wicked. The end of verse 2, You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So the righteous, who have experienced the healing of the Son of Righteousness, will now participate in destroying the wicked. And that will be part of the healing reign of righteousness. This is the ultimate final judgment when the righteous and the wicked are forever separated and wickedness is destroyed from the earth so that the reign of the Prince of Peace will be a perfect reign of peace forever. Verse four, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Why are we supposed to remember the law and the covenant? Well, because the law is what says that men are wicked and deserve judgment. And the law is also what Jesus kept perfectly in our place. It's our standing before God. And the covenant means that God will keep his promise. That Jesus will do what God said he would do. This will happen then verses 5 and 6 behold i will send you elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest i come and dis- and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction so john the baptist comes to announce that the day of the lord is coming and the day comes and it arrives in the ministry of Jesus and in I, I think even partly in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The judgment of the Lord arrives and we are living in the last day and it is not yet complete, but ultimately one day it will be. And all that God has promised will be accomplished as the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. But for now, John the Baptist comes with a message to turn. Turn your hearts so that you can escape the destruction. And that's what Charles Wesley has been saying when he says that that Jesus comes with mercy mild. He's coming in his arrival at Christmas, not in the severity of judgment, but he's coming in compassionate mercy. But that doesn't mean that you should be lulled into sleep because there is a day coming that he will return in judgment. And so we are given the warning to respond. And so here, as this verse comes to an end, "...mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die." Mild he lays his glory by. Again, he's coming in a mild manner in this Christmas arrival. He lays his glory by. That means he's taking on flesh. But it also means that in his glory he he, he rightfully could destroy all those who oppose him. Opposition to this Lord deserves judgment. But he... He lays aside that offended glory in order to be mild, compassionate, patient in this first arrival at Christmas. But don't be fooled. Don't think that he won't return in judgment. He will one day. And then we have these three phrases that give Why he came. Born that man no more may die. He comes to defeat death. All of his people are rescued from death. Born to raise the sons of earth. Sons of earth, when they die, return to the earth. But his children will be raised to new life, raised up from the earth, death reversed and defeated born to give them second birth, like Jesus says to Nicodemus, new birth. See, these Christmas hymns that we have been looking at are not just focused on the moment of Christmas. They take the Christmas event and they set it in the context of the whole grand story of what God is doing And so the birth of Jesus is celebrated even by the angels in triumph, not because the birth was a triumph, but because the birth is the beginning of the unpacking of the victory that God has promised. The birth is signifying that God is now keeping his promise. And everything that unfolds thereafter is part of God's grand plan. That's why there's such great celebration. And these great Christmas hymns are not just sentimental hymns about this quiet nativity scene. They're hymns that take the birth of Christ and set it like a diamond in its setting, in a ring, in the proper context so that you can see why the birth is so incredible. Because this is fully God and fully man, This baby who's born. And this is the one who's going to defeat sin and death. This is the one who's going to be the prince of peace. The ruler we've been longing for. This is the one in whom we have justification and peace with God. Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Lord, we thank you for songwriters who are able to put together a hymn like this that packs in such wonderful theology and is so loaded with scripture. It just flows out of what you tell us in your word. And it's not just about the moments of the birth, but it's setting the birth in the context of all that you are doing in Christ. And we pray that as we sing, we would sing like the angels, We would respond to this invitation to join with them in singing this triumph song. That we wouldn't just be singing another Christmas song, but that we would be singing with the whole story in view. That we would be worshiping you, adoring you like the angels, because we see what it is that you are accomplishing in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.